This is the Bobcats, a Bob Dylan fan podcast. everyone and welcome to Atlanta Fulton County Stadium for game two in the series between the Philadelphia Phillies and the Atlanta Braves. I'm Pete Van Wert along with Joe Simpson. Another beautiful night for baseball here in Atlanta. Long before Bob Dylan, I spent my time thinking about sports. Growing up in Iowa before the internet existed, there weren't a lot of other options for things to do and pay attention to. Sports were something I could watch, understand, participate in, and direct my obsessive tendencies toward. When we visited the library at school, the only books I ever checked out were thick, ancient-looking collections of baseball records and statistics. I kept stats for our recess soccer games. I kept stats for the basketball and wiffle ball games we played around the house. When I watched the Atlanta Braves baseball games on TBS, I kept a scorebook and charted results on every single game for two years. In high school, I served as the basketball team statistician and manager and earned the nickname Stats. Now I can recall what the third song at the fourth Dylan show was that I attended 20 years ago, as well as the date of that show, the name of the venue, and the way he sang the fifth word of that song. So my skills with statistics haven't gone completely to waste. From the beginning, I like to root for underdog teams and athletes who succeeded in unconventional ways. The first team I followed closely was the worst of first Atlanta Braves in 1991. They were in the process of going from 90 losses to 90 wins with a team that played a strategic brand of baseball with strike throwing pitchers who relied on their defense and an offense that bunted, stole bases and manufactured runs rather than swinging for the fences. In football, I like the Packers because they played in the smallest town in professional sports, played their games in the snow and were owned by their fans. In basketball, I was drawn to the short, unathletic point guards. They were more relatable for me. I figured players who were gifted with height and athleticism were a dime a dozen. So I preferred players who could excel by passing, making free throws, and making three-pointers. I read a lot about distance runners like Emil Zadipek, who would use unconventional training methods like running through the snow in heavy boots, and Steve Prefontaine, who set records despite lacking sprint speed and not having the typical build of a world-class distance runner. Once again, short on talent and stature myself, I could relate to these athletes. I would later become an excellent baseball player and distance runner. I like that in baseball and in running, you get to prove yourself and you don't have to rely on coaches to give you a chance or teammates to set you up. If you can run fast, you can run fast. I didn't have any accomplished athletes in my family, no name recognition or reputation to uphold. And I almost always came from a much smaller town than the kids I was competing against from around the state. So I always considered myself a bit of an underdog. Of course, no musician is more associated with underdogs than the one who was fast becoming my favorite, Bob Dylan. The first two Dylan albums I bought on my own were Greatest Hits Volume 2 and a three-pack of Freewheelin', The Times They Are Changin', and Another Side of Bob Dylan. And they were full of songs that were either about underdogs or where the singer himself was the underdog. There were songs about war, poverty, and oppression. They came from another time but carried themes that made them relevant at any time. This is how Bob himself must have felt when he discovered Woody Guthrie's collection of Dust Bowl ballads 35 years earlier. Flashing for the warriors Whose strength is not to fight Flashing for the refugees On the unarmed road of flight And for each and every underdog soldier The chimes of freedom flashing 
It occurred to me later on that Bob himself was the ultimate unconventional underdog. He wasn't the handsome, clean-cut boy band type that dominated the late 50s music scene. He wasn't gifted with a great voice. And he was never a conventionally great guitar player or piano player. And as he mentioned in No Direction Home when talking about his desire to attend West Point and Chronicles when talking about having his early band stolen and not getting gigs, he didn't have any connections that could gain him access either. Bob made it because he could write and because he was so driven to find a path to success. When he couldn't make it as a sideman playing piano with Bobby V and the residents of Minnesota's Iron Range weren't interested in his Little Richard style band leader antics, he reinvented himself as a lone drifting disciple of Woody Guthrie. And he went to work internalizing the songs of the early 1900s folk tradition. When that ran its course in the early sixties, he realized he could write his own songs that expressed the feelings in the air around Greenwich village. Of course, he quickly cornered the topical song market and started exploring more personal territory in his songs in increasingly abstract and groundbreaking ways. Through the years, he's teamed up with bands in the studio and on the road, but he remains an individual entity, which allows him to do things the way he wants. Back in Iowa in the mid-90s, Bob Dylan was just one of many artists I listened to on Oldies 104 out of Sioux City, Iowa, while I was shooting hoops in the driveway, cleaning my room, or washing dishes at the Golden Pheasant Steakhouse. Some of my favorite songs that played regularly on the Oldies station, before I even knew who wrote them, were Quinn the Eskimo, It Ain't Me Babe, and All Along the Watchtower. Other than the radio, I mostly listened to the Beatles. They were widely considered the best band ever, and I had a collection of their albums on tape that my brother gave me when he left for college. I was also interested in long songs. I would call Oldies 104 periodically and request they play American Pie by Don McLean. My brother had a meatloaf CD and I played the extended 12 minute version of I'd Do Anything for Love. In the movie Wayne's World, Wayne says that everyone in the world has Frampton Comes Alive. So I bought that album and listened to the 14 minute song, Do You Feel Like We Do, over and over again. At my friend Nick's house, he played me Arlo Guthrie's song, Alice's Restaurant. And I was fascinated by the idea that there was no limit to how long a song could be. These things all served as primers for what was to come. You can get anything you want at Alice's Restaurant. You can get anything you want at Alice's Restaurant. Walk right in, it's around the back, just a half a mile from the railroad track. And you can get anything you want at Alice's Restaurant. While my brother was away at college, he sent me three things that left a lasting impression on me and would end up changing the course of my life. The first was a mixtape that contained the bulk of Bringing It All Back Home and Highway 61 Revisited. I only knew the greatest hits tracks from those albums. So to suddenly have the full scope of those albums revealed to me all at the same time made me feel like I discovered a map to the lost city of Atlantis. I wish I could go back and experience that explosion that took place in my mind when I was about 13 and heard Gates of Eden, Desolation Row, and It's All Right Ma for the first time in a span of a half hour. Those songs went places I didn't know popular music could go and made clear a sense of disillusionment I felt but could never have put my finger on and certainly couldn't have put into words. A question in your nerves is lit Yet you know there is no answer fit To satisfy and sure you not to quit To keep it in your mind and not forget That it is not he or she or them or it That you belong to But though the masters make the rules For the wise men and the fools I got nothing more to live up to 
The second thing my brother sent me was a VHS copy of Don't Look Back. I had to admit that the first reaction I had to the movie was, darn, he's an asshole. I'd later get past this with the context that he was a 24-year-old who had just been thrust into worldwide fame and he was still coping with it. Now it bothers me that people still think he's an aloof prick based on this one-hour sample size from 57 years ago. We've all been a-holes for an hour in our lives. That aside, when I saw him perform The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll in that movie, it completely blew me away. Unlike those other 60s songs, the language was so simple. But the ideas and the message were so big and complex and important. The righteous passion he delivered the song with on the stage in England in 1965 made the album take seem flat by comparison. It made me wonder why anyone accepted less from the music they listened to. How can people go back to hollow pop music when music like this exists? Why are all the kids in my class listening to the Spice Girls, Hanson, and NSYNC? The answer was that they didn't know that this music existed, and I did. And I consider myself very lucky that I did. Williams and Zinger, who at just 24 years Owns a tobacco farm of 600 acres With rich, wealthy parents who provide and protect him And high office relations in the politics of Maryland Reacted to his deed with a shrug of his shoulders And swear words and sneering in his tongue it was snarling And in a matter of minutes on bail was out walking And you who philosophize disgrace And criticize all fears Take the rig away from your face Now ain't the time for your tears Bob Dylan's music entered my life at a time when I didn't have much to relate to. I could relate to him and his music on multiple levels. For one, we were both kids who grew up in small Midwestern towns where we didn't really fit in and our parents didn't work in the town's primary industries. My dad sold oil in a farming community, and his dad worked for Standard Oil and then an appliance store in a mining town. More importantly, Bob provided a real-life example of someone who escaped and found his own way in the world. Kids in the 80s and 90s were constantly told that they could be anything if they just put their mind to it. I didn't really believe it then, and I don't think I even believe it now, but Bob actually did it. He left Hibbing, found a place where he would be accepted, made the music he wanted to make, stood up for the things he believed in, paved his own pathway to success, and followed it all the way to the top, all by the time he was 25. Speaking of the top, the third thing my brother sent me was the Bootleg Series Volume 4, the Royal Albert Hall concert, shortly after it was released in the fall of 1998. By that time, I was well on my way toward a Bob Dylan obsession and aware of the lore that came with the 66 tour and the Judas incident. I don't know if it was a complete accident or a brilliant strategy executed by my brother, but the three packages came in the perfect sequence and over the course of a couple years allowed me to slowly experience Dylan's evolution as an artist. The manic energy and hypnotic singing on Live 66 was unlike anything I'd ever heard. After listening to the album straight through a few times, I remember having the realization that this music was the most powerful I'd ever heard and that I couldn't imagine ever wanting to deprive myself of listening to it. It might be with me for the rest of my life.
You have been listening to The Bobcats, a Bob Dylan fan podcast. You can find back episodes of the show on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Please feel free to rate, review, and share a link to this podcast with your Bob-loving friends around the world. For the latest Bob Dylan news and commentary, follow me on Twitter at Matt underscore Stike. Once again, thanks for listening, and be sure to join us next time for another episode of The Bobcats. Bobcats.